You know the name, or familiar with the name, Dr. R.C. Sproul. You heard that name? R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul's kind of, he's a, what is he? He's an author, theologian. He's kind of a big deal in the United States. Well, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, he asked me if he could buy my son Colin a book by R.C. Sproul for his Christmas. Right. A couple of years ago, so my son was four <laughs> years old at the time. And so thankfully, it wasn't R.C. Sproul's book on uh, advanced apologetics. And it wasn't his book on sort of doctrine, the nature of scripture. Thankfully, it was R.C. Sproul's kid's book. A book that he had written for this time of year. Get this, get this. A book telling the Christmas story from the viewpoint of one of the donkeys. Uh, Don't you love that idea? You know, this aging, erudite theologian writing a Christmas book from the viewpoint of a donkey. But that is the way things are at this time of year, isn't it? (laughs) Let's say that we were to go to a nativity play in a school. These they love to be sort of inventive with the Christmas story, don't they? So maybe it would be the Christmas story from the viewpoint of one of the shepherds, wouldn't it? Or maybe the Christmas viewpoint, the Christmas story from the viewpoint of one of the wise men, or for Mary or somebody like that. Here's the thing. Do you not think there is always a character in the Christmas story that's overlooked? I, I don't mean the baby Jesus. Hopefully Jesus is front and center. I mean, Joseph. Isn't that, isn't that the case? Don't you think Joseph, when the Christmas story is told, Joseph is almost always forget, for, forgotten. And, and I tell you, that's very, very strange and unusual. I'll tell you why. Think about what it was that Ijidai read earlier on. Think about what this is. What is it? It is one of only three New Testament accounts of Jesus' birth. But what is it? It's the Christmas story told from Joseph's point of view. It's the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, told by Matthew, but told from Joseph's perspective. So, here's the plan. Okay, this morning what we'll do is we'll spend a short while together looking at the Christmas story, this familiar account of Jesus' birth. But all the while, what we will do is keep one eye on Joseph. Uh, to think about what these events here in Bethlehem, what they meant for him. Okay. With these things said, I would invite you at this point to please turn back with me in your Bibles to Matthew, just to have that open, that short section of Scripture that we read. So it's, what is it, page 995, is it? No, 965 in the Bible. Matthew chapter 1. And reading, looking from verse 18. So, first of all, first thing we'll think about here, the first thing we've got to notice in this section of Scripture is the involvement of the Holy Spirit. So let's think about that, the involvement here in the Christmas story, the involvement of the Holy Spirit of God. Would you look with me at how it begins? It begins with, it's almost, it's a subheading. And it's a subheading that kind of leaves us in no doubt about what it is that we're supposed to be looking and thinking about this morning. Do you see it? Look at it. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. I mean, it's it's unambiguous, isn't it? I mean, straightforward. We're dealing with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But on top of that, we're almost 
uh, immediately introduced to the main characters as well, Mary and Joseph, and also something said about the relationship. Do you notice this? It says that Mary and Joseph were, same verse, you'll see it, they were pledged to be married. Pledged to be married. Would you allow me just to get the obvious thing out of the way? I'm pretty sure you know what I'm going to say at this point. This idea of uh, them being pledged to be married or betrothed, it's very different, much more significant than our, our idea or understanding of engagement. Much is much different to that. This was a sort of a legally binding situation. So Mary and Joseph, even at this very point, they were committed to each other under law, but they're still not married. And so when we read what we go on to read, it still blows our socks off, doesn't it? Just look at this, what we told. And in the first century, an unmarried girl was pregnant and that this was the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you don't have to tell me, I know that you are familiar (laughs) with the Christmas story. You know this. But surely you still see just how incredible, how massive this is. What are we talking about here? We're talking about a virgin. I mean, verse 18 makes it very, very clear. She's never been with Joseph. A virgin girl, and what, she's carrying a child in her womb? Not just that. Think about it. She owes this situation to the activity, to the personal involvement of God himself. We might be familiar with this, but it's still staggering, isn't it? Actually, it's what's not said here that I want us to think about. What do I mean? Well, just think about our congregation for, for a moment or two. Like, uh, quite a few of the congregation are away uh, today, going back to different parts of the world. But that just reinforces what I'm going to say. The congregation at London City Presbyterian Church is taken from, it's a gathered congregation in a pretty big sense of the world. We're from all four corners of the globe. And because of that, <coughs> the Brits in the congregation, we are always being ridiculed for how uh, restrained or how reserved we are. You know, the, the South Americans and the Brazilians in particular always laughing at us for just how sort of reserved we, we are. And, and I'm okay with that, you know. I, I'm a Scotsman, uh, so, I, so I don't cuddle strangers, you know. Uh, I'm a Scotsman, I barely cuddle my wife, you know. I mean, it's just, just the way that we are. Here's the thing, though. Matthew, the author here, is a bit like us Brits. Do you see what I mean by that? Now, he is a Jew, and he is writing to Jews... And so because of that, what he does is write with what is kind of typical Jewish reserve, kind of Jewish restraint. Do you see how that works out in this portion of scripture? Do you see it? Yes, we are told that the Holy Spirit is engaged in the conception of this child, but we're not told anything about how that happens, are we? Yes, we're told that the Holy Spirit is involved, but we are given very, very little information about that. And I tell you this, I think that is very deliberate. Do you see why? At Christmas time, friends, 
the miracle, the truth of the virgin birth, it is communicated to humanity. But it is absolutely not unpacked for humanity. I mean, this glorious miracle that we are supposed to be celebrating today, it is stated for you. But it is not here explained for you, is it? And I think that is the beauty of Christmas, isn't it? Isn't that what makes Christmas so incredibly special? In some ways, unlike Easter, with its comprehensive detailing of the cross, and the comprehensive detailing of the resurrection, this is so stark, isn't it? It's just laid in front of you. Do you see why? It is to bring forth wonder, and it is to bring forth praise. One Puritan commentator says this. I love this. He says, the mystery of the incarnation, it is to be adored, not pride into. And so friends, I'd say to you, this Christmas, would you do that? Would you quite simply pause, wonder, and praise God for this? You know, put down this Christmas your iPhone and your iPad, and if you can, switch off Netflix for, for just a little bit, and find space. I find a bit of time to, to think about this, to meditate upon this, to praise Jesus for this incredible miracle, to praise him for what? What are we told here? That before Mary and Joseph were together, before they were together, that Mary was found to be with child. And how? Through the Holy Spirit of God. Doesn't that produce, inspire wonder? Isn't that an incredible truth? A truth that should bring forth praise. So we see the involvement of the Holy Spirit. Second thing that we should note here is the instructions of the angel. So you've seen the (coughs) involvement of the Holy Spirit. Second thing to notice is the instruction of the angel. Now, do you remember what I said at the start of the sermon? Matthew's telling this uh, birth narrative from whose perspective? From Joseph's from Joseph's perspective. So at this point we've got to be wondering uh, how's Joseph feeling about this? Because we're working our way through the story. Now think about it, at this precise moment, what does he know? Oh, at this moment, all Joseph knows is that the girl that he is engaged to is pregnant. And what, what is the only thing that he, at this precise moment, that he is absolutely sure about? Well, this baby is not my baby. Okay, so you see what he's thinking. How does he respond to that? Well, actually, if you, if you see it, what Joseph does is, is show an incredible degree of compassion. And it's, it's almost sort of surprising mercy here. But we are dealing with the first century, aren't we? And, and what would be expected is that not only would Joseph divorce this girl because of this situation, it would be expected that he would make a big song and dance, man, a big sort of spectacle of doing this to shame her. Is that what he does? Well, yeah, he considers divorcing Mary, but because he loves her, because he's a righteous man, he doesn't want to do that publicly. He wants to do it privately and intimately. So there's compassion. 
But really what I want us to look, up, look on and consider is the, ne- the, the appearance of the angel. An angel appears to Joseph. Now, if you're a parent here uh, this morning, then you will know that one of the best things about expecting a baby is the opportunity to give that baby a name. There is nothing better than naming a child. I remember what it was like for uh, my wife and I. I was going to say more, but she's here, so I better be a bit more. I'll be reserved. Um, but, you know, we would, there was, uh, needless to say, there were some weird and wacky names being thrown out by both sides when we were thinking about what name our kids. And I would, I would suggest something that would be quickly vetoed. And then Catherine would suggest something, and I'd be like, we're never, <laughs> never naming a child that. But it's a lot of fun to do this, to think names. Eventually you get a name. Now, you think about it, that Mary and Joseph do not get that opportunity, do they? Because the angel appears and confirms, Joseph, you do not have to divorce this woman. But then what does the angel say? It reveals that actually God himself is going to be the one who names this child. Mary, you're not doing it. Joseph, you're not doing it. God is naming the child. What does the angel say? You are to give him the name Jesus, meaning the Lord saves. Now, I would would ask you a favor at this point. I would ask you just to look at the meaning of, or the reason why this child is to be named this. Would you see this with me at verse 21? Why is the child called Jesus? You are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. My friends, with that, we cut through all the celebrations at Christmas and all the shopping in the trees and we get to the heart of what Christmas is all about, don't we? It's so cheesy if a minister gets up to the front and says the reason for the season. But if the reason for the season is anything, it's that, isn't it? That here in Bethlehem was being born a child that was unlike any other child. You know, a child who would not just be Lord. A child who would not just be a teacher or an example or a redeemer. But a child that would be, what What does the angel say? A child that would be a saviour. And a saviour for whom? What does he say? For his people. And what would he save his people from? He will save his people from their sins. Are you a member of London City Presbyterian Church? Friends, do you see in those words just why this Christmas you should be filled with such spiritual excitement and joy? Here in Bethlehem was being born your Savior. Here, now, being born the one who would save you from the reality of your sin and from the consequences of your sin and from the guilt of your sin and from the wages of your sin and from the punishment of your sin. All of it, this one, he would do it all. But maybe you're not a member of London City Presbyterian Church and maybe today you're just passing through 
If so, if you're visiting this morning, I've got a question for you. Would you please hear the question? See, when this angel appears to Joseph and says, he will save his people from their sin, does that include you? Does it? Are you part of the people that Jesus views as his own? Are you someone who has looked to Jesus as Savior for forgiveness of your sin? Have you done that? If so, if you have done that, then you too this morning, you know the joy in these angelic instructions, don't you? Joseph, you know the joy of this, don't you? Joseph, go and name the child. And you will name him, you will name him Jesus. So we see uh, the involvement uh, of the Holy Spirit, the instructions of the angel. Thirdly, a third heading, we see here the insight of the prophet. The insight of the prophet. Okay, at this time of year... uh, we hear, don't we, the same phrase being, especially if you've got children in the house, you hear the same phrase being banded about the whole time. Uh, no matter where you are and who you're speaking to, whether it be children you're speaking to, or whether you go shop and it's shops, shop staff you're speaking to, or even if it's strangers, everyone is uh, wishing each other a very Merry Christmas, okay? Now, in this book that you've got in front of you, Matthew's Gospel, it's the same thing. Like all the way through this book, there's the same phrase that Matthew repeats. I don't know how many times. Lots and lots of times. He repeats one phrase. Keeps going, keeps going. It's this in verse 22. He keeps saying, all the way through, he says, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. So you'll you'll go on a chapter and he'll say it again. You'll say, oh, hang on, hang on. That took place to fulfill what was said. The prophet, and then go on a little bit more, and you say, "Oh no, that took place to fulfil." Do you see what he's doing? What did I say earlier on? Who's he writing to? He's writing to Jews. Do you see what Matthew's doing? He wants his readership to see that this child being spoken of is their saviour. He wants them to recognise that this child born in Bethlehem, that he is the long-promised Jewish Messiah. Okay, but what does he say here? Look at this. What does he do? Do you see? He cites... What's the Old Testament scripture he cites? It's Isaiah. And get this. Isaiah spoke of a time where a special kid was going to be born, a special boy, and he would be born to a virgin. Now, I honestly think we could... I'd be quite happy to bask in that for the rest of the day. The kids will have to listen up because it's part of your worksheet, boys and girls. Are you listening? I happily bask in the fact that 700 years before this birth, that Isaiah, God prompted Isaiah to write about this birth in detail, 700 years beforehand. But I don't want to bask in that. Instead, let's notice what else we learn from this prophet, because it's staggering. Look at this in verse 23. So Matthew cites this Old Testament prophet who says the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a boy. What are they going to call him? No. 
Well, yes. But they will call him Emmanuel. They will call him Emmanuel. So what do we learn? We learn that, yes, this child is going to be called Jesus. But we learn on top of that, there's going to be a second name here. He's also going to be called Emmanuel. Now, wait a minute. Do you, do you see what we're learning there? It's absolutely incredible. We're learning that this child, that he is divine. Is that not the lesson here? He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. So what we're learning is that God was not just present in the creation of this little boy. We are learning that God was also present in the very nature of this little child. That this one born to Mary was both human and divine. Now here's my question. Would you follow the logic with me? Do you see how special that makes the Christian faith? We know, don't we, that other religions and other beliefs, they have their deities. They have their gods. But isn't it the case that in each of these religions, their god is separate and distant to humanity, distant to the worshippers? Isn't that the case? Isn't it? If we think about it, just think about it with me. Like, how do people view God? They view God as either being above them, you know, as other sort of monotheistic belief does. God's above them. Or, what do other religions do? They will view God as being kind of all around them in everything, as sort of Eastern religion might do, or, or even New Age understanding. Above, all around. Some people, they view God as being, God is beneath me. As maybe an atheist might do. But do you see the truth in Matthew 1? I mean, do you see the truth in the Lord Jesus Christ? God is not above. God is not just all around in the things. God is not beneath. What is God? He is Emmanuel. He is God. He's God with us. And that's such a special truth for Christians at this time of year, is it not? Do you see what it means? It means we have a God who understands and empathizes and comprehends us. He is with us. Don't you see? Like he understands the problems of human life. He was born in Mary. He lived a human life. He knows what it's like to have relational issues or family issues or work issues or uh, lack of health or even to be bereaved. He understands and gets it. Friends, at Christmas, the people of God, we have every reason to praise the name of Jesus. Do we not? Why? What is the name? He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. No wonder at this time of year we love to sing what we're about to sing in a few moments. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead, see. Hail the incarnate deity. And then the last thing, just in conclusion, very briefly, 
the inclination of the Father. The inclination of the Father. Here, what I want to do, just as we pull everything together, I just want to go back to the, the opening idea, the inclination of the Father. Remember what we said? We're looking at Joseph, and we're thinking about this from Joseph's point of view. If we are going to understand this portion of Scripture, we have to understand that there is a huge tension that is sitting over every single word. Did you see that? If we're going to understand this, we have to understand that there is a massive question that is being asked in this portion of Scripture. Do you see what the question is? This section of Scripture is all about this. Will Joseph accept this little child as his own child? That's the question. That's the tension here. Will Joseph do what he was going to do? Will he divorce Mary? Or will he obey the angel and accept Mary and accept the child? Now here's the thing. Do you see why that is such a massive, such a eternally significant? Do you see why your salvation hinges upon the answer to that question? Think about it. In the whole of the Old Testament, what has God been doing? He has been... He's been speaking of the coming of a saviour, right? He's been speaking about a messiah. Christ is going to come, but what sort of Christ was it? Come on. It was a saviour in the line of David. God consistently promises David's greater son. He consistently promises that one will come in the royal line of David. But think about this, though. Given the way that the child has been conceived... That lineage is up in the air. Isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, who fathered this child? Actually, it's it's God who fathered this child. So do you see the tension? Unless someone can be found to accept this child, someone in the line of David, then, then, then how will these Old Testament prophecies be fulfilled? Do you see it? That is why the angel greets Joseph in the way that he does. Do you see the emphasis? What does he say? Verse 20. The angel appears and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Friends, because of the eternal significance of this question, I think we should be delighted what we go on to read here, that Joseph did obey the angel that he did obey the will of God and that he did accept Jesus, this child, as his own, that this Messiah, that he truly is a Messiah in the line of David. I wonder, do you see it though? Do you see in that what God has done for his people? Do you? He's done that for us, hasn't he? I mean, think about our situation. We were separated from God. We, you, were not rightly a child of God. And what has God done? He 
raised on this. Through Jesus Christ, through this child growing up, living a righteous life, dying on the cross, being risen from the dead, God has done this. He has looked at you as a Christian, and he said, though you are not my child, in Christ I accept you. I will take you, and I will take you into my very own family. I will take you because of Christ, and I will live, and I will place on you my lineage, and I will place on you my name. And so today, this morning, we have talked a lot about Joseph's point of view, have we not? Here's what I'm wondering. If the Christmas story was told from your point of view, what would be said? Like, who would, who would be said to have been born in Bethlehem? Would the story just say it was somebody of little consequence? Somebody that I've given a little bit of thought to now and again, but this Jesus, no. Not for me. This is somebody I reject. Is that what would be said? I hope and I pray not. I hope and I pray that you see that this one in Bethlehem is a saviour. He can be your lord, your king, your everything. I hope that over the next couple of days leading up to Christmas that you are found rejoicing and rejoicing that this little child's name would be Emmanuel, God with us. I hope this Christmas you will be rejoicing that his name was Jesus. Why? Because he would save his people from their sin. Friends, let's pray.